Speaking of the seat next to you, how many people here love roller coasters? Love roller coasters? How many people hate roller coasters? You can't, you can't do it. You can't do it. Okay. All right. So I personally love roller coasters. Love them, love them, love them, love them, love them. There's just something about that feeling of weightlessness. I mean, especially if you want to lose weight. <laughs> because when you're up there, you know, you don't weigh as much. And so, you know, if you, that's you, this is dad joke going bad here. But you just like roller coasters. And, and there's nothing like that feeling of the, your stomach, like on the back of your teeth. I mean, it's just, it's the best. And it's... It's really cool because you're terrified and totally free all at one time, and you lose control. Like you're just like, ah, you just lo- total, totally lose control. Some people really lose control. <laughs> Anybody ever been on a roller coaster that's happened? Has that ever been you? Thank you for admitting to that. That's very brave of you. Don't do that again. Now, I remember... I used to take these groups of teenagers to Cedar Point, and a couple of you were there. Dina was there. Aaron John was there. Kel- is Kelsey here? She was there. A couple of you guys went to Cedar Point with us. You know what that's like. And, and there was this boy. His name was, was Bradley. <clears throat> and Bradley didn't like roller coasters. But we gave him a little healthy bullying. You know what I mean? Like, come on, dude. They're the best. You love them, you chicken. Right? And so he went on this roller coaster, and it was, I think it was called the Maverick, and there's like this little bridge on the Maverick where you could see the people coming off of the cars. And I remember seeing this boy in this cart after the roller coaster ride was done, and he looked like, uh, like a lizard. He was green. But he looked like, like a dead lizard because he was kind of like pasty and white and pale. And the, the first thing that, that came to my mind was this boy's mother is going to kill me. And if you know his mother, you know she ain't playing, Darcy. Watch this video. I'm talking about you. But le- I want to let you know that your son's doing well. He's in college. He's getting married. So he's, he, he's just fine. But for those of us who really do love roller coasters, there's something amazing about losing control. It's a thrill. It boosts the adrenaline but it's probably the only area in your life where you're okay with losing control because people, me included, love being in control, right? You're lying. You're like, not me. Like, my boss likes to be in control. Let me tell you about my boss. My wife likes to be in control. Let me tell you about that. Woman always want to be in control. But I'm going to tell you something. You like to be in control too. Let's test this out. Can I, can I come to your house after church? Anybody will let me come over? Anybody? Okay. Can I rearrange your cabinets in your kitchen? Can I move your couch? Can I touch your remote control? <laughs> How about your cell phone? Can I bring my baby to your house to put your AirPods in her mouth? Bill Panzarella. <laughs> so, so, so we all like to be in control, don't we? Anybody here make chili for the chili cook-off? Can I put some ingredients in your chili? Is that okay? No, because we like to be in control in small areas, but in big ones too. And you'll know what they are when you start to lose control over them. You don't realize how much control you have over your finances or you like to have over your finances until you lose your job. You don't realize how much control you like to have over your relationships until they go really, really bad. You don't realize how much control you like to have over your children until your beautiful daughter starts to like boys. I'll punch that boy. 
We all like to be in control, and all of us lose a little bit of that control from time after time, you know, at some time. And it can be scary. It can be scary when we lose control. We get this sense of anxiety that comes from not knowing how things are going to turn out. There's that fear of the unknown, and everything you tried has failed, and the old ways aren't working anymore. If you've had kids, again, you know what this feels like. If you've had any sort of relationship, you know what this feels like. It's hard to know what to do when you start to lose your grip on things. So as we continue in our second week of this series, I Choose, I want to talk about something that you can choose over control especially in relationships. And we're going to focus on this relationship piece, the relationships with your family and your coworkers and your customers and the people you go to church with and your mother-in-law and everybody in your life, all these people you work with, your clients. We're going to talk about choosing something over control. And when you do this, I guarantee you, your life will be full of joy. You will live a much more meaningful and satisfied life. This thing, I'm going to say this word, and you'll be like, what? This thing is surrender. Today I want to talk about choosing surrender over control. I know that sounds crazy, but I promise choosing surrender over control is the key to a fulfilled life, and I'm going to prove that to you. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open that Bible to John chapter 17. You can use the Bible app. We'll also have the words on the screen there. If you are brand new at Altered Church, we are super glad that you are here. It's no accident that you are here. We pray over every seat at Altar Church. So it's not an accident that you showed up. Now, I want to let you know how I preach this to sort of give you like a, you know, so you know what to expect. It's the same formula every week. I start off my sermon by telling some jokes. That way you can relate to me so you're less likely to leave halfway through the sermon. Then I'm going to open up the scriptures, and we're going to break these scriptures down. We're going to go line by line, really dig into them, but not in such a way that you feel overwhelmed, you're not sure what it means. We're really going to go over these scriptures, and then we're going to apply it so you have something to take home with you. So number one, when you leave here, you'll have learned something. And number two, as you leave here, you'll have taken something with you that you can apply to your life. So that being said, we're going to talk about John 17. In John 17, Jesus has just completed what we call the Last Supper. Jesus is only hours away from his trial, his torture, and his execution. Jesus is in a condition where only weeks before he had 70 friends hanging out with him and then Jesus said some stuff they couldn't handle and so now he's got 12 friends and those friends, they're kind of teetering as well. And, and, And right at this moment, one of those friends is selling them out In a couple more hours, he's only going to have three friends, and let's go down to one. So Jesus is in this condition where things are getting difficult, okay? He's facing something unexpected. Well, he expects it, but not everyone else does, but he knows it's going to be difficult. He knows all the things that are going to happen to him. He's going to willingly turn his life over so that his death and subsequent resurrection, everyone can be restored back to God. Jesus knows that everything is riding on him. That his mission on earth has come down to these hours. And he's determined to willingly give himself over to that mission. And this would be one of those situations where if it was us, we'd start to feel like we're losing control. Control is slipping away. Again, Jesus knows that his friends will betray him. 
You'll be beaten and tortured and humiliated and killed. So if you can think a little bit about how that might feel, use your imagination, you can put yourself into the shoes of Jesus, or rather the sandals of Jesus. You can kind of think about what he might be going through. And so as we open chapter 17, we see that Jesus is praying. He's praying. He's asking God, first of all, to care for and to protect his disciples. And second, he's asking for the protection of the church, believers like you and me. And what's really fascinating to me as I'm reading this is that Jesus is praying these prayers to God to take care of his friends, to take care of us, but he really didn't need to because Jesus gave over control when he had full control. Jesus gave over control when he had full control. First of all, he gave over control to God. Second, he gave control over to the people who'd be arresting him and executing him. Why would he do this? He's doing this because he knew for the sake of the world, for the sake of our souls, he had to choose surrender over control. Jesus surrenders his will over to the will of God. He surrenders his life over to the people who are going to try him and execute him. Because surrender for our sake was more valuable to him than control for his sake. And that's where we're going to jump into the text right here in John 17. Now keep in mind, Jesus has just prayed for his disciples. He's prayed for their unity, for their protection. And now he says in, in, in verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. Not, I'm praying not just for my disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. In other words, Jesus is advocating and praying for all of us that have heard the message of the gospel and believed. He's praying for every single person in this room, everyone that you know who is a believer in Christ, every believer throughout the history of the world. Now keep in mind that whatever he's praying for is going to be really important. Really important. We're paying attention to how do I know because this is the last prayer that Jesus prays in the book of John. In his last prayer, he was thinking about us. In his last prayer, he was thinking about the church. And this is what he prays for. That all of them may be, what's the word? One. All of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Jesus' last prayer is about us. It's about the church. It's about unity. Jesus is praying that we are one just as he and the Father are one, distinguishable and different, yet united in mission, purpose, focus, vision, and love. Jesus' last prayer is about us. It's about the church. It's about unity. Why is unity so important to Jesus? He says, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The unity of believers would be evidence to the world that Jesus was who he says he was. So just like wrap your mind around this. You and I, our unity together under common purpose, 
common mission, common love, is evidence to the world that Jesus is real and worth following, okay? So think about all the things that we do in the church, like having an Easter event and having a Christmas event and small groups and discipleship programs and and music, outreach events, all the stuff we do in the church is less important than unity. Unity was the primary tool of us proving to the world that Jesus was was worth following. Think about that. Really think about that. Why? Because the world is full of disunity and discord and fighting and bickering and selfishness. And if our church looks like that, if the body of believers looks like that, then the world says, you're not worth following because I can find the same thing out there without losing anything like I will when I come to your church. Because when I come to your church, you tell me I have to love people. I don't got to do that out there. When I come to your church, you say I have to be generous. I don't have to do that out there. So why would they come here into the body of believers if they can find the same behavior out there? That's why Jesus says unity is the most important thing we can do to prove that he is real. Have you thought about that before? I'll be honest with you. I've been a Christian for many years I went to Bible college, and, and, and when I first read this, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. What Jesus is saying is we have to be different than what we see out here. What we find in the church that Christ prayed for is an upside-down kingdom where the weak are exalted, where there's justice for the broken, where there is power in forgiveness and love. And it's our unity where we model the kingdom of God to the world. Now, Jesus is going to repeat this prayer again. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity, to complete unity, to complete unity, those words are important. Complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now this time Jesus changes the language. He doesn't just say oneness or unity. He says what? One more time. Complete unity. Complete unity. Complete unity. Unity, and I I think this verse is really, really, really important because it removes the justification that we use for preference searching in the church. Christian, (laughs) listen, we prefer things to be our way, right? Like, that's just human nature. I want things my way. And for every unique person, there is a unique preference for what we want the church to look like. For instance, music. I was in my little room getting ready to to come up here and preach, and there was a song that came on the radio I didn't like. (laughs) I turned it to the next one. Why preference? Nothing wrong with that song. I just didn't like it. We have preference for lighting. I like to worship in a sanctuary that is dark. I prefer not to worship in front of the beating hot sun in front of me, which is blinding me. 
I prefer not to preach that way, but look, that's what's happening up here, okay? We all have a preference. We have a preference for preaching style. There are people who really like the way I preach. There's people who don't like the way I preach. That's okay. Send me an email. You get to preach next week. <laughs> there's preferences in the events that we do. All the stuff that we do, there's preference. And that's okay. That's fine. That's part of being a human being. But sometimes we can make the preference the measuring stick for our happiness. In other words, if things aren't done in a certain way, we get irritated and become negative and cynical and complainy. Complainy is not a word. But it is. You can use it now. I just said it. Complainy. Unless you're complaining about the fact they made up words, don't do that. Let me confess to you, though, that I remember being at a point in my life well, this became like a reality for me. I was starting to be successful as a leader, and this is in a church that I really loved, okay? So I'd be successful as a leader. I was going to, 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 to college and learning all those things about Christian leadership, and everything I saw could be improved. Like, everything started to be wrong. Man, why we gotta do this? Why is it like that? Why can't, why can't we do this other thing instead of this thing? I tell you what, someday I'm going to be a pastor, and we're not going to do any of this stuff. We're going to do all this other stuff. It's going to be way better. Now, that's not to say that everything was right or great because it wasn't. There were things that needed to be improved. I just didn't have a very helpful heart. And I think, like, right now as I read what's going on here in John, I think about my 20-something-year-old Heart, my 20-something-year-old self talking these things out loud to Jesus while he's sitting there praying about, about to be executed, talking about the unity in the church and how this organization was going to be hope to the world, that this would break the curse. What we do right here was going to change everything about everything. And I'm coming to Jesus, and I'm like, look, man, we, we spend too much time on the, the, the this, and we shouldn't have been, we should be doing that. And, and I just see Jesus looking at me, and he's like, dude, shut up. <laughs> Stop. And then saying to me, complete unity. Complete unity. Aaron, be a leader. Aaron, be a pastor. Aaron, be a, a, an influencer but be unified and be a unifier. Bring people together. That's what I want from you. Bring people together, young pastor. You'll have your chance. In the meantime, be unified. Have a helpful heart. The answer that Jesus gives us for every complaint or irritation that we have with one another in the church is always the same. What is it? What is it? What is it? Complete. Unity. What is it? Complete unity. But Jesus, the people in my church are serious jerks. <laughs> Jesus is like, I know my buddies are trying to kill me. I know about your church. I got one too. They're selling me out. They're going to leave me by myself. So I know about your church. I know about the people that sit in that seat, in that seat. I know about the pastor. I know about the music. I died for them. That's my church. Complete unity. Now, complete unity always requires us to be more loving, more graceful, more forgiving than we would be if we had other options. Now, the words complete unity are like that mysterious force. Like that mysterious force that every 
parent has that keeps them from leaving town. When they walk into the room with a toddler in the crib and it's smelling some funky. And they walk in the room and it, it, it's on them. It's on the toys. It's on the walls. It's on their face. It's poop. It, it's everywhere. And they're smiling like, hey. It's so, it's so fun, daddy. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been there before? You know what I'm talking about? I had one child. I don't want to give away who it was, but they were so good at this. And I say they because if I said the, you know, the, the three-letter word that might identify the, the gender, you'd know who it was. So I'm not going to do that, okay? But th- this person was really, really good at that. And it was really hard to deal with that, but I was a parent and I had to love them. If you've ever had a child who's played with the poop and they're still in your life, you're going to fit right in here at the church. (laughs) Because the church is always going to be a big, nasty mess. I want to say poop all over the place, but I hope not. Like, I hope it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor, okay? (laughs) But our unity helps us love each other in the middle of that. And it says to the world, we know peace in chaos. We can do that. We can find joy in ashes. And we can show you in the middle of a dying world what radical, heart-changing, destiny-shaping, chain-breaking love looks like. And our unity is proof to the world that Jesus is worth following. But this message isn't really about unity. It's about choosing surrender over control. Because when we demand control, then our ideas and preferences and complaints are always more important than everyone else. When we demand control, we don't show grace. We become domineering and unwavering. And our churches look just like those PTO boards and those business boardrooms and those halls where our politicians meet. They're full of pettiness and jealousy and self-centeredness. That's not the church. When our churches and our lives as Christ followers resemble the worst that the world has to offer, we aren't giving hope. We aren't showing the world what agape love looks like, a love of the will, a love of surrender. We aren't modeling anything worth having. And when we demand control, we miss out on joy. Surrender. That's where love happens. In Philippians chapter 2, this is my favorite, like favorite Bible verse for today. I got a lot of favorites, but for today, this is my favorite one. It's super duper important. It's in my top 10 for sure. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Amen. Who, being in very nature God, in other words, had all the attributes of God, all the power of God, all the rights of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. In the Greek, there's this word here called kenosis, which means to empty, to set aside. So Jesus set aside his own rights. He surrendered by taking the very nature of a servant, by being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, a humiliating death, 
that only a criminal deserved, not the Son of God, but he did that. Why? For us. Surrendering his rights, kenosis for us. And there's that upside-down kingdom again. Jesus is showing us what true power, what true power looks like by becoming a servant. And see, in the world, we think power is gained by stepping over people, by triumphing over people, by winning over other people. Jesus says that's not what it is. Power is obtained by stooping low, by washing somebody's feet. Because when you have every right to gain power and achieve power, and you say, no, I'm going to stoop down and I'm going to serve you and love you, that's true power. Jesus is showing us what true influence is by giving over his right so that we could have the right to become sons and daughters of God. Amen. What a great truth that is. You want to have power? Surrender. You want to have influence? Surrender. Serve. Love. This is the model for all the unity he was praying for in John 17. And, and Jesus, don't mishear me, Jesus is not saying that we can't be leaders, he can't, we can't be CEOs and influencers. He's not telling us that we have to be pushovers or weak-minded. On the contrary, we should be highly intelligent, hardworking, people who strive to do our very best because that honors God. But in that, in everything that we do, if we are willing to surrender to one another in love, we can be the best leaders that we can be, the best parents that we can be, the best coaches and doctors and lawyers or housekeepers or crunchy stay-at-home moms because we're always saying, I value your needs above my own. And I want to pour my life into your life like Jesus poured his life into mine. A surrender to others out of love, compassion, and peace is the way of Christ. It's the mission of the church. It's the radical minimum standard of every single Christian. Every single Christian surrender. Surrender, love, give, serve. Pour into people with all you have. What if we tried to bring that to life? Like, what if we tried to breathe life into that concept? First of all, in our homes. Now, this is where the, the, the preacher has to listen to himself. Are my children in here? Good. Just kidding. What if? What if in your homes, instead of telling your kids, you know what? Just, just do what I said because I'm your dad, okay? Just do, just do what I said because I'm your dad and, you, and you, you need to listen to what I said. I don't want to talk to you. Instead of that, you say, listen, son, I don't understand. Can you explain that to me? Can I hear why, why you think that's important? Can we try that? Is that surrender? It is. What if you stop telling your wife, stop nagging me? Why are you always on my case? And you start asking your wife or your husband, how can I love you better? I wish I knew where she was at because I'd ask her, how can I love you better? Send me a text message. You let me know. What if you stop holding that thing against your husband because he hasn't apologized in that perfect way that you just, it's just got to be so. It's just got to be in this specific way, but he hasn't done that yet. How about you just let it go? 
What if you said, Dad, I'm really so- sorry for acting annoyed at you in that thing that you said about what to watch out for with guys? I'm gonna, I want to know about that. Like, I want you to tell me. And also, that dad joke you told me about, about the dentist. Can I hear that one again? You know, when you were like, what time does a guy with a toothache go to the dentist? And you were like, tooth hurdy. Tooth hurdy. Dad, I want to hear that one again. You got any more, dad? <laughs> You're going to be sharing that on Facebook. Brian's going home. He's going he's to use that. His first sermon in New York City. He's going to use that one. But what if everyone in your family said, I surrender my right to be offended. But if I am, I'm going to come to you in love and peace. I surrender my heart to you. I surrender my love to you. I want to serve you. Because unity in our family is how we will honor Jesus and love each other the best way. Anybody here with their family? Can you turn to them and say, I surrender? Can you mean it? Watch what happens. Did you come with a friend? Can you turn to them and say, I surrender? Do you mean it? Watch what happens. How would your job look? Your friendships, your encounters with people at the checkout line or at the doctor's office, if you didn't always have to be right, if you put your phone away and looked for people who needed to talk, you can always tell, right? You can always tell when someone is hurting and they need someone to talk to. We don't do that much anymore, do we? Why not? I'm the chief offender because we got this. What if you stop looking at people on the street or people with mental illness or people with a different skin color with eyes of judgment? What if you got that one friend who loved the State of the Union and you get that other one who hated it and was posting memes all over everywhere. And you got them together and you had coffee and you said, I know we disagree on some stuff. I can see it. But can we agree to serve Christ and figure out ways that we can bring his love into our community? What is it, your job, you want to change the culture of negativity so you make it a point to offer praise and encouragement to everyone you encounter because you know they're having a bad day. You know it. Now control says, I'm going to stay in my cubicle, so let me be. Surrender says, it's not my job, but I'm going to make it my responsibility to love others well and breathe some life into this place in the name of Jesus Christ. How about the church? And this is really bringing us back full circle to that prayer with Jesus. What if each of us, those of you who come for the first time, the pastor, the people over here in the front, in the back, Jerry Bush back there, what if the ladies who greeted you, everyone in every seat, every man, woman, and child, what if we each made it our responsibility to embrace surrender? What if we pursued that unity that Jesus was praying about? And what if we made it a point to say, you first in every relationship. You first. <laughs> oh, there's one bowl of chili. You first. I'm having a bad day. So are you. But you know what? I care about you. And I want to hear from you how I can make your day better. You first. What if we said that in every single relationship? 
What if you're a single mom? Would it feel better knowing that you could come to a place where people genuinely cared about you and you could be yourself? And where your kids could just be themselves and be crazy with no judgment? And if you were a mom who was married, your kids could act like that too. And you could be yourself. What if you were a woman? Would it feel good to know you could come to a place that you are truly valued for everything that you are? Everything God made you to be and there are no roadblocks in your path. What if you're a person with mental illness? Would it be comforting to know that you could have a family that wanted to help you with all the stigmas and the labels, all those judgments that you find everywhere else you go? What if you are a person of color? Would you like to be involved in a diverse community that welcomed you and listened to you and cared about life from your perspective and offered to serve you as you led us in making a change in the world? What if you just needed to come to a place and listen? You wonder if you're comfortable knowing that people care and they wanted to listen. What if you wanted to have a place to go where people could hear your hurt? Not judge you and not condemn you, just to hear you. Would you feel comfortable and welcomed and valued if you knew that this place would be a place where you could be loved, supported, and lifted up because we have all agreed to choose surrender over control, unity over division, community over conflict. And I truly believe, and when I say I believe, I want you to know I believe. In fact, I want to say I know. I believe that our church that started in a little basement over on East Main Street with those wires hanging down, a little church that just started with a bunch of hope, this church will be a church that sends missionaries and church planters to over 50 countries. And you're looking around like, how's that going to happen? I just said I believe. I believe that we will pray for every seat in this auditorium and we will fill it twice on Sundays, maybe three times. And then we will expand to have campuses all over Northeast Ohio. I believe that we will lead excellent recovery services. That we will create and serve a ministry for the hungry. Have exceptional volunteers serving and loving children and adults with disabilities. I believe, in fact, I know that we will be a church that bridges the racial divide. I believe we'll be a church that loves and pours into all of the marginalized in our community because that's who Jesus loved, and so we will love them too. You might think I'm being presumptuous or audacious or bold by telling you this. I'm looking around. I don't see any of that. Do you have a plan for that? No, I don't. But I believe that God is who he says he is. And if I didn't believe that, what kind of believer would I be? I believe in a God who brings the dead back to life and brings, brings hope into broken things. And I believe he will show himself and he will reveal himself to the world through the unified church. How do I know? Because he said so. He told me so. He proved it to be true. And that's who I believe in.
And so that's what we're going to do. We will continue to build a church that brings the people of God together under a common mission and purpose. We will have differences. We'll look different. We'll dress different. We'll talk different. We'll have different passions. But we will be individually unique, but together. Everything that Jesus prayed for in his last hours. I don't want to let you down, Jesus. I'm going to do it, and we're going to do it. Because you've given us your spirit of power to make it so. I believe that as a pastor, it is my responsibility to share vision and create culture. This has been embedded into my soul, into my identity. I can't change it. Purpose over preference. Mission over me. Courage over comfort. I can't change this. This is who I am. And I promise that it will be my singular purpose and focus for as long as I am here. It will be the singular purpose and focus of my wife and my family to serve this church, this family, so that we can be a unified church. And not just a unified church for the sake of unification, but a unified church for the sake of the true, hope-giving, life-restoring gospel that comes to change the world, that brings heaven to earth. That's why we will create a unified church. I believe that this is what Jesus wanted for his church. And when we do it, I believe he will allow us to change our pocket of history. Is there one person here? Is there one person who will help me with that? Is there two? Is there five? Is there 10? That's good. Because if we can do that, if we can create a culture of unity, we will get to experience Telio. Telio is something we read back there in, in verse 23. Now, we read it as complete unity. Remember, I said it like three times complete unity, complete unity, complete unity. And you said it back, or one or two of you did. Complete, remember that? Remember that? It's complete unity. Mm -hmm. But the word that we read as complete. It's from the Greek word teleo. It's best translated perfected. Perfected. Jesus is pre praying that our unity is perfected. How is our unity perfected? If you got a Bible, I want you to underline this and I want you to circle this. I never want you to forget this. This might be the most important thing you ever hear in a church service. John 17, verse 23, perfected. When we are together in unity, that unity is made perfect in his love for us. And I want you to pay attention because it means that anyone here who puts their faith and trust in Jesus, no matter what your background is, and I mean no matter, no matter where you've grown up, or how you've grown up, or how terrible your parents are, or what happened to you in your childhood, no matter what's been done to you, or what you've done to other people, no matter who you've hurt, or how you've been hurt, no matter what you've said, the perfection 
of unity is the understanding that God will love you even as, even as he's loved his own son. Do you understand what that means? Even as his own son, Jesus is saying, Father, I want you to love him just like you love me. Just like you've loved me. And I know they can't earn it. I, don't, I know they don't deserve it, but I want you to love them like me. Understand what that means. God loves you with the same intensity that he loves his son. And I didn't want to read this part earlier because I didn't want to just gloss over it. I want us to sit and think about the truth of this. He loves you just as he loves his son just as he loves his son. And so, as we pray for every one of these seats here, and I promise you, we're gonna do that every week. We're gonna pray for every single seat. But that means that your attendance is not an accident. Sometime back in eternity past, God said, on this day, this smiling face, this broken heart, this dysfunctional story is gonna come to church on this day and that seat and hear this word. The Father rejoices over you and loves you with the same passion that he loves his son. Same passion. And we get to feel that. We get to know it. We are together in perfected unity. Is the church worth it? Oh yeah, it is. It's worth it if I get to know that, if I get to feel that, if I get to live in the warmth of that knowledge. As you leave here today, I want you to feel the comfort, the sufficiency, the fulfillment, the security, knowing that you are loved more deeply than you can ever imagine. You are more valuable to God than you can ever comprehend. agree that God is good. Can we agree that God is good? Can we agree that God is good? Let's agree that Jesus is the restorer. Let's agree that the church brings hope. Let's agree that we have a mission of love. And let's agree that we have a destiny a purpose to bring people to the feet of Jesus Christ so that their eternities can be changed, so their souls can be restored, so they can be perfectly washed in the love of Jesus Christ. And let's do this together, church. Good news to the poor, comfort for the brokenhearted, freedom for the oppressed, sight to the blind, joy out of ashes. In Jesus' name, together we are a movement of God.